This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby's Nimer. A Canadian study finding that offers a key clue to why, for some, back pain becomes chronic. And then you'll hear from the person who championed August 1st being officially designated Emancipation Day in this country. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The debate whether to pop or put away those vitamin D supplements continues. New research out of the States suggests the sunshine vitamin does not reduce the risk of broken bones in generally healthy older adults. The study tracked those given either high-dose vitamin D or placebo for five years. That same study had previously found extra vitamin D did not prevent heart disease, cancer, or memory loss either. Now, with this majestic statue, we pay tribute to a giant and a revolutionary, not only in women's history, but in human history. After years of trying a statue of aviation pioneer, Amelia Earhart now stands in the U.S. Capitol. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was the guest speaker at the unveiling of the bronze statue of the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic, who subsequently disappeared in 1937 when the then 39-year-old attempted to fly around the world. One of the first aviators to promote commercial air travel, Earhart was also an author, social worker, and military nurse. A 102-year-old woman from Montgomery, Alabama, has been honored for her service with an all-woman, all-black military unit that delivered mail to American troops in Europe during World War II. The honor for Romay Davis follows U.S. President Joe Biden's decision back in March to sign a bill authorizing the Congressional Gold Medal for her unit that went to Europe to clear out massive amounts of mail which had gathered in warehouses. Their motto was, no mail, low morale. British environmental scientist James Lovelock died on his 103rd birthday from complications related to a fall. His contributions included developing a device to measure ozone-depleting chlorofluorocarbons in the atmosphere and pollutants in the air, soil, and water. His influential Gaia theory, named after the Greek goddess of the Earth and first proposed in the 1970s, saw the planet as a complex, self-regulating system that created and maintained the conditions for life. Lovelock said humans have thrown the system dangerously off-kilter. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's likely you, a loved one or friend, suffers from chronic pain, especially in the lower back. Researchers at McGill University and scientists from over in Italy conducted a study that suggests blocking inflammation after injury might make that pain chronic, challenging the standard approach to treating pain. 
One of those who worked on it was Jeffrey Mogul, psychology professor at McGill. We're interested in looking uh, at uh, genes that change their expression uh, in people who resolve their pain versus people whose pain persisted. And this is a technique known as transcriptomics, and it's fairly new, and it never really had been applied to pain patients in this way before. Uh, so we got ourselves about 100 back pain patients, and they all had back pain at six weeks. So at that point, they had acute back pain, and half of them went on and were looked at three months, and their pain was still there. So those were patients whose pain persisted, and now they had chronic back pain. And the other half, uh, they got better, and so they uh, resolved. Uh, their pain. And we simply took uh, blood cells from all those patients and uh, ran them through the fancy machines to see uh, what genes were uh, uh, upregulated and what genes were downregulated. And uh, we did it simply because we were looking to see what we could see. There was no focused hypothesis at all. Were they all taking anti-inflammatory drugs or not? Um, in the original cohort. Yeah, probably most of them were, since that's pretty much standard practice. Although it'd be uh, unrealistic to expect that it would be the um, drugs they were taking that would cause the difference, um, because both groups were taking the drugs. So we, we looked to see, you know, which genes uh, changed and which genes didn't. Um, and uh, we got a big surprise because what we were expecting, I think what anyone in the field would expect, is that it would be the people who developed chronic pain that would show all the gene changes right? Because they're the ones developing the problem. And you would imagine that uh, to cause chronic pain, something would need to happen. Genes would need to be expressed. Uh, but what we found to our great surprise is that exactly the opposite thing happened. In people who developed chronic pain, they didn't have any genes expressed, really. Uh, and it was the people who got better that uh, had the genes expressed, suggesting that what requires genes to be expressed, what requires a biological activity is getting better, not developing chronic pain. And so then we looked and tried to see, okay, well, which genes? And of course, there are tens of thousands of genes, so that was a complicated question. Uh, basically, the pattern was pretty clear. It was genes involved in inflammation, were the ones that were being expressed, specifically genes associated with an immune cell called neutrophils. And so that led to a hypothesis that what is causing pain to resolve is inflammation and neutrophil activation. And at that point, uh, we had a hypothesis and we set about doing uh, studies in mice to see if that was true. So next step would be involve humans in trials. Oh, well, the next step uh, at the end, but I haven't even gotten to the end of the first study yet. So we did animal experiments, and we confirmed, in fact, that if you prevent inflammation from occurring in mice, you get pain relief early on, as you might expect, um, but at the cost of a greatly delayed resolution. So the pain went on a lot longer in animals where we blocked the inflammation than it did uh, in animals where we left it to happen. And so that actually confirmed the hypothesis uh, that the original back pain study suggested. And then the final thing we did was go back to humans and look at data uh, in what's called the, uh, the UK Biobank. 
which is a collection of data from many hundreds of thousands of Brits. And we looked to people who had chronic pain uh, in the UK biobank and found that those that were taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen, were much more likely to develop chronic pain than those taking other types of analgesics, uh, for example, like Tylenol. So there's really no general piece of advice to give to anyone listening to this who says, so what should I do about my pain in the lower back? Right. Okay. So the first thing to say is is that we have no uh, recommendations to make whatsoever on the treatment of pain that's already there. Okay. So if you have pain and it's well-established, then, you know, you should be taking whatever you're taking and, and all drugs that you might be taking, they either work well or poorly and they have side effects uh, of their own. What we're talking about are new injuries, okay? So you have new back pain or you've just sprained your ankle uh, or you've just had some sort of injury. And the question is, what should you or shouldn't you take to manage the pain from that new injury? Uh, and our data would strongly suggest that the wrong answer is anti-inflammatories, and the right answer would be some analgesic that doesn't affect inflammation, like, for example, Tylenol. But I should caveat that by saying that there should be no uh, real recommendations for anyone on anything uh, until there are large clinical trials uh, carried out to um, uh, you know, prove this hypothesis, right? So this is, our study was hypothesis generating. Uh, it wasn't uh, uh, designed to uh, give the final answer on what people should or shouldn't do. Of course, those clinical trials are now currently underway. Uh, we're doing some of them. We're sure other people are, are doing them as well. Jeffrey Mogul, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. That was Jeffrey Mogul, study researcher and psychology professor at McGill University. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby's Nimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, why August 1st is more than just a holiday. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. August 1st is the civic holiday in Ontario and some other provinces. But did you know it's also Emancipation Day in Canada? It's due to Rosemary Sadler as president of the Ontario Black History Society from 1993 through 2015. She advocated for Canada's black history and the eventual designation of August 1st as Emancipation Day just last year. So, does the author of seven books on the subject and recipient of the Order of Ontario for her contributions feel black children are still facing the same issues she did when she was young? Absolutely. Uh, I wish I could say that they weren't, but the reality is that we still have a school system, a curriculum in most places across this country that does not reflect and include um, the contributions, achievements, uh, and and value of people of African descent to this country. And that would be pretty much the same as it was when I was going to school and likely when you were too. Does it surprise you that there hasn't been more change over the years? I wish I could say I was surprised. But I think that 
that's in part the way systemic racism works. It does slow certain things up a bit, and it is frustrating. But I, I think the other side of it is that there's hope because we still have to find those ways to keep moving and making the changes and pressing for the things that are important to us. And sometimes that has a slightly different focus over decades and over generations. Certainly, uh, my ancestors were looking for the opportunity to be free under the law in this country when they came in um, as part of the Underground Railroad movement and um, also on the other side of my family when they came in as black loyalists at, at the invitation of the government to be free in this country. That freedom was there, but the opportunity was not always there. And that is what we continue to be dealing with, the continued frustration, challenge, and just, yeah, the, what, does, what does freedom really mean when you're... Um, faced with so many barriers. What does the official recognition of Emancipation Day mean then? Well, I started working on having Emancipation Day formally recognized about 1994-1995. I was immediately successful with the City of Toronto, Metro Toronto, the City of Ottawa. Uh, It also then went to provincial unanimous uh, vote in 2008 when it went through. And that really sparked a lot of movement and and a lot of meaning for a lot of people. It went to second reading twice in the House of Commons, second reading twice in the Senate, before it ever was ultimately passed in March of 2021. And at that moment in time, after having advocated and launching petitions and meeting with opposing parties over years, literally decades, I was really just so... Uh, relieved and shocked and happy. And I think that what Emancipation Day means is an opportunity for the recognition that there was enslavement of Africans on the lands that we now call Canada, but it's important for us to use that as a time to focus on that. And it's also a time for us to focus on those pieces, those bits that still need to be done. And some of those bits are really quite quite big, and some are, are just you know, common sense. What are some of the bigger bits? Let's take a look at maybe a couple. Well, I think, you know, the original question that we kind of started with, we, while the federal government does not control uh, education, it's a, a provincial responsibility, certainly the, the federal government can use its influence to encourage uh, the provinces to do more in terms of education and to ensure that that piece so that we have greater awareness and understanding with all of our, all Canadians, not just black Canadians, all Canadians, so that they all know the true history of this country so that they can have a more balanced perspective on what a Canadian really is and what a Canadian really looks like and what a, what a resilient Canadian may have gone through. But I think that it's also about those opening up more opportunities for people who have not had those opportunities opened up for them before. So many people uh, are trained and never get that job. So if you never get that entry job, you are therefore never ready for, never mind the job, but middle management. And then it makes those other positions even more challenging to get. 
also opening up opportunities because when people can take care of themselves, take care of their families, it just makes things better for everyone. You mentioned your ancestors. Tell us about the veterans who made up a World War I unit known as a construction battalion as there's a family connection there. Certainly black people are not just military people, but they are, that does, that is part of what they have been. And I um, am the descendant on my father's side, as I alluded to earlier, of many people who are from New Brunswick. In uh, the number two construction battalion, 60% or more of the people who enlisted from New Brunswick are related to me. And there's a very famous picture that I'm sure everyone may have seen of the number two construction battalion of the band and the gentleman who is on the far right. Everyone in that picture is related to me, but the gentleman who's on the far right of that picture is the grandfather who I never met. He was dead long before I was ever born. But um, it's it's quite amazing because without the um, work that uh, former uh, Senator Calvin Ruck had done, I would never have come to know, I would never have come to see that picture, perhaps. I certainly had other pictures in my in the family, but um, I think that's quite phenomenal. And what's further phenomenal is that these were people who wanted to defend being Canadian, defend Canadians, and they were denied that opportunity until finally an all-black unit was uh, allowed to be constructed, which was the number two construction battalion. And they faced a difficult situation. They were transported across the Atlantic in unescorted, undefended ships. They could have been torpedoed at any point. They were not uh, able to get the medical uh, support that they might have needed once they were in significantly in, in Paris, it's sorry, in Jura, France, where they were uh, working on road construction and other hard labor. Um, and I think that when they came back, after having still risked their lives, whether they were on the front lines or not, um, to not be treated equitably, um, to not be given the same opportunities as other returning veterans. Has the federal government officially apologized for what they faced when they came back home? As you know, um, the federal government recently apologized to the veterans of the number two, the descendants and the veterans of the number two construction battalion. But the apology um, really needed to have happened um, quite a long time ago. There are few, if any, remaining people who would have known any of those veterans. Um, And I think that the situation, the apologies, the redress that needs to happen for the African-Canadian community um, is only in part reflected in the apology that was given to the number two construction battalion. Okay. Rosemary Sadler, thank you very much for sharing your experiences, the efforts you put in over the years, and uh, leading us up to this point, and something tells me uh, you're not done. I am absolutely not done. <laughs> I um, This is a, a work of, of passion and representation, and um, I, uh, there's still much to be done. Canadian author and Black history advocate, Rosemary Sadler. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer. 
Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.